0: What we got there is, if you like, a fairly direct answer from Jesus himself. Uh, Salvation is of the Jews, he says. And clearly this comes in relation to a uh, the, the question in the mind of the uh, Samaritan woman uh, who was clearly confused by a, a, her own background in the thinking of these things. But Jesus is quite unequivocal about it Uh, if you want salvation you've got to look in the right place she was looking for the Messiah so she was looking in the right place wasn't she but clearly she didn't get the answer that she expected from Jesus Uh, what I want to do is having uh, left that uh, scenario with you at the beginning I want to come back to it for a bit but uh, I want first of all uh, to develop uh, another idea that we're again quite familiar with God chose to reveal himself to and through the Jews. I remember a couple of people in particular who have come along to talk to us and were puzzled by this. You know, why is it that the Jews should be set apart from all the other races in the world and be in the focus of God's attention in imparting the knowledge of salvation to them? Uh, it's quite a difficult question, especially if you come from a, a setup where you are critical of the Jews and what they've done, uh, how they've gone about um, uh, making their, their, their own through, way through the world. Because there's no doubt that whilst some people have looked on the Jews with favour, there are plenty of people who haven't. They've upset enough people, haven't they? They've been seen to be uh, greedy, uh, uh, acquisitive and very self-seeking, the way they go about things, and it's not endeared everybody to them. So if you come to these things with this mindset, and then you see laid out for you in the pages of Scripture, God's purpose centred in the Jews, it uh, makes you stop and think. And there are plenty of uh, nominally Christian people who you talk to about Christianity, uh, and some of them anti-Jewish themselves. And they don't seem to associate uh, Christianity with the Jews. Well, uh, that's a fundamental mistake that they might make. But no escaping the fact, this is what God chose to do. It was very deliberate on his part. It goes right back to the early days of the Old Testament. I'm not going to trawl through the promises to Abraham or whatever. uh, But you you, you know you can't go, go very far through the subject without dealing with Abraham. God God chose Abraham, if you like. And the basis for that choice, on God's part, was God's recognition of the faith that Abraham showed. Now, that's a good point to start, isn't it? And in Abraham's time, there wasn't a Jewish race. Uh, uh, Abraham uh, had sons. Uh, There was Isaac, and there was Ishmael. We didn't get the Jewish race there either. Ishmael went off and was the progenitor of a a branch of the Arabs. Uh, Others came from cousins of uh, Abraham, if you like to term it that way. But yeah, Isaac was not a Jew. Isaac again had two sons there was Jacob, there was Esau. From Jacob we get the Jews, but from Esau we get another branch of the uh, Arab people, don't we? So Going back to this era, what we can do now is to see the beginning of the Jewish race, but also what we've got identified are the things that God spoke to Abraham about. We can go through the promises of Abraham and we can itemise all the different um, uh, areas of content there, but there are just two I want to just refer to in passing at this stage. One is that the promises made great emphasis of the land, the land we now know as the land of Israel. Abraham was told to go there and walk through it, north, south, east and west and whatever. And the other important point I think we need to draw attention to is the fact that there was the seed. And it was the seed uh, later revealed to be God's son. And the king appointed to rule over the world from Jerusalem. And uh, the, the, the Samaritan woman yeah, didn't recognise Jesus uh, as such at the time, but yeah, th- this was the seed that was being spoken of. She was looking for the Messiah. She found him, and this was what was being referred to, of course, in uh, the promises to Abraham. So these are the uh, basics when we're looking at this question. We don't, we can't question God about why He should have chosen the Jews. We can't say to God, you perhaps should have chosen somebody else. God knew what He was doing and He knew why. Our role in this is to accept God's decision and to see the wonderful way this has worked out, not only for uh, the, the, the Jewish nation in, in what they became, but also in the fact that there was in Jesus salvation for the world. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Right, I'd like to go back now to um, Isaiah 43. There's a little bit from there I want to look at and read. If you go. Isaiah 43 in verse 1. Um, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. So this was God addressing the Jews (coughs) through Isaiah the prophet. So God clearly identifies himself with these people. Strange in a way when you consider, well, turn back to the early chapters of Isaiah, you, you've got there a, 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 a vigorous castigation by God of the Jewish people and what they've got wrong, haven't you? And this is the, the mess that they were in that made God send Isaiah with a stiff message for them. So even though this was the state of the nation, God is still prepared in the chapter here to speak to them. In these terms, fear not, I have redeemed you. Well, this was looking forward, wasn't it? I have called you by name, you are mine. So, God was still prepared to identify Himself with them. God had a purpose that needed to be worked out, and He was going to do it visibly in these people. Verse 10, verses 10 and 11, I shall read now. Addressing the Jews. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. (coughs) I I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. So, salvation is of the Jews, salvation is of God. In these two messages has somehow got to be brought together. So we read in beginning of verse 10, you are my witnesses. How do the Jews witness to God? Is the question. We see it through scripture very clearly. And scripture fulfilled. It's wonderful when you see the extent of prophecies involving them, and the detail of their fulfilment, and the picture of things yet future, that God will be glorified through. And we see this because we read our Bible. If you read your Bible, you don't really have to go very far through it before you pick up these points. I know there are plenty of people who do read the Bible who miss it completely. Uh, But there we are, There's perhaps not a great deal we can do about this, uh, uh, from from where we are. We do what we can, don't we? So we're in a position where by reading the Bible, by accepting God's purpose established in the Jews that's revealed there, we we can see (coughs) how it is that the Jews witness to God. But what if we don't read the Bible? If if you don't read the Bible, and you don't pick up this message about God working through the Jews, how how can this mean anything? How can this verse mean anything to them? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. How do the Jews witness to God if you don't know what the Bible says? I remember um, perhaps the uh, uh, train of thought that um, preceded this particular talk I've got at the moment is, uh, I set myself a challenge. You know. uh, if, if you, instead of delivering a, a traditional Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening talk in which you're going through the Bible, quoting passage after passage, which make the point for us, what perhaps there's a way of addressing this from the point of view of someone as I was saying before, who doesn't read their Bible? How is it that we can look at this question and answer it without turning from passage to passage to passage to see the way in which the fulfilment of prophecy uh, (coughs) demonstrates that what God says about the Jews is right? So then, what about the Jews? Shut the Bible in a vigorous speech, if you like, but we've got to keep uh, uh, it, it... they're not, not very far from our consciousness at all times, haven't we, the Jews, what's happened in, in their history that's testified to God. Uh, for a long time, that they were an isolated nation, weren't they? They were scattered, dispersed, but they retained their identity. That of itself is quite remarkable. Yeah. The, the size of the land, and the population of the land, is similar to a country like Estonia. And if you can imagine these are circumstances in which a nation of that size and that, uh, and that number of people was wiped out in their land and carted off somewhere else. The, the, the possibility of them retaining their identity you would say was zero. But the Jews have retained their identity. Why? First of all, it's quite clear that God intended that they should. And and secondly, I think this has to some extent been achieved uh, because they took with them their law, the Old Testament, the law by which they lived. And whilst in so many respects they misrepresent what God intended them to know from it, they nevertheless took it and they remembered certain aspects of it and it was taught from one generation to the next and it kept them together in a way that perhaps nothing else would have done. So it's possible to find communities of Jews in various parts of the world who have been detached from the land and the nation and the rest of the people for long periods of time but do nevertheless retain their Jewish identity. Now, one of the things that kept them together was the fact that they were seen as a different group because they behaved differently, they thought differently, they had different interests, and they made their money in different ways. But the fact that they did that meant that anything they achieved as a nation was almost... Happening behind closed doors. <clears throat> Nobody ever saw it. There was a couple of hundred years ago a thing that was is, is spoken of now as the Jewish Enlightenment, where Jews, having lived like this for hundreds of thousands of years, some of them started thinking, well, look, there's more to the life that we have, our existence in confined space. there's a world out there, we're living in it, we're making wealth from it, why don't we interact a little bit more, but at the same time preserve our Jewishness? And this idea of the Enlightenment, as it's come to be known, (coughs) gave license to Jewish people uh, to interact more with people outside. Now, I don't know how much you know about the detail of the development of uh, the Jews as a nation and their achievements since then, but, but it, it's been quite remarkable. Uh, the Rothschild, for instance, wouldn't have made their money in the same public way uh, uh, had they not <coughs> broken ranks with the pre- previous generations of Jewish people. But, but they did. Uh, and what, what, what was done by them in the banking world was seen in a way that it wasn't before. Mentioned perhaps the person whose name is most closely associated with the Enlightenment. The the name is Mendelssohn, not Felix the composer, but his dad. Uh, There was um, uh, an attempt on his part to break out of the confines of Jewishness. And uh, we know Felix Mendelssohn as a composer because he wrote good music. You won't be able to tell me much about any Jewish composers prior to that? Challenge you. No? Okay. But uh, yeah, whatever um, expertise there was there, it, we never heard of it. Since a time, there have been lots of Jewish composers. Uh, not going through a list of them, but yeah, their skill in this area is, is quite remarkable. The Jews travelled from place to place. They took their music with them from place to place. Mostly, the instruments they took were violins, not pianos. And it's obvious why, isn't it, if you think about it. But if if you look at the uh, Jewish race uh, and their expertise with, in in the first instance, the violin, but almost any other instrument since, you can go into popular music as well and look at their, uh, their, uh, their achievements in popular music too. But think about it, how many of the world's major musicians, what proportion of the world's major musicians since Mendelssohn's time have been Jews? If you're talking about top violinists, you know, if, if you look at the top 100 violinists, that there isn't such a list, perhaps there is, I don't know, but you, you'd find that getting on for 40% of them would be Jews. Um, why should that be interesting? Why should it be remarkable? What's the Jewish population relative to the rest of the world? It's about 0.2% of the world population, about one person in 500 across the world is Jewish. So how come the Jews are observable when you start looking at them in that way? Um, I think there's something behind it. Um, Mention the financial world and their effect on the financial world just by mentioning one, one name. Music. We talked about a little bit about music. What what about the world of science and maths and learning? Um, What proportion of the Nobel Prize winners in physical sciences are Jewish? Do you know it's fifty percent? If you take the physics and the chemistry, it's fifty percent of them since the inauguration of it for Jews. That's quite staggering. Um, Perhaps you don't want to bring credit to the Jews through the the other one I've got listed here, but uh, at the end of the Second World War, the big quest for uh, 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 survival was attached to the uh, development of the atomic bomb. The Manhattan Project, it was called. Again, 50% of the team were Jews in America, a lot of them with German or German-sounding names. And we know why they came together, but the fact that they were Jews says something. It's almost as if God has said, right, there are these people who bear my name because they're Jews. They're not going to admit to having an allegiance to God, the creator. But they're there, and I'm going to make sure that they show up in the world. And this is something the world can see and understand the way in which God wants the Jews to be seen, just so that questions might arise in their minds. How come this is as it is? And it's, to me, fairly clear that God wanted the Jews to be noticed, to be seen, because he showed through their accomplishments, their achievements, that there was something special about them. Now that of itself does nothing for their place in God's purpose because unless they individually respond to the call of God then they have no place with God but at least we as observers can look on it and say right God said he had placed his name within those and the Bible isn't the only place where we can have some indication that this is the way we ought to look at it we see it from what somehow. God did in them and through them. Just by way of co- uh, contrast here, we can see the uh, pe- people will often look at the Jews in contrast to um, the Islamic world. Yes, both descended from uh, branches of Abraham's family. Uh, how many Nobel Prize winning Islamic people have there been? Do we think in the same time? Yes, these are questions that I mustn't expect anybody to know the answer. Well, the you is one. There's been one. Nobody will tell me his name either. Uh, 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 his name is Abdus-Salam. He Salam. He, He's a Pakistani man, uh, disowned by most of the Islamic world because he belonged to an, an offshoot group. Uh, yeah, so what, what, is the, what, what does this mean? That the... Um, the difference in um, the intelligence of these two groups of people is as marked as that? Or, or has it got something to do with the cultural setup within the uh, the, the, the groups of people? Uh, I said before, before the Enlightenment, Jews didn't show up in anything. Is there something about the culture of the Islamic world these days that could, constrains the Islamic people in the same way? And I think there probably is. But nevertheless, when you see since post-Enlightenment the two put on you know, a, a level playing field, so to speak, it's the Jews that dominate, the, the Islamic people don't. And th- there, I think, is there a- an evidence there that these people have God's uh, purpose embodied within them in a way that the rest of the world does not. So it's a way of just having it... It doesn't teach your salvation, but there's a clue there that there's something special about them and that God is working through them. Right, I'm going to leave that there for now and come back to uh, another slant on this because I said earlier on that the Bible message about the Jews and how his name was to be vindicated through um, them is one that Scripture is full of. I've got a couple of passages I'm going to have a look at now. Can you turn to Ezekiel 35, please? There's a lot going on in uh, the land of Israel um, at the moment because They're surrounded by enemies. And we'll see a few bits here that set the scene. Ezekiel 35, and I shall read the first six verses. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir, and prophesy against it. Um, Mount Seir will be a reference to uh, Edom and Descendants of Esau, going back to the scene setting with the earlier on, prophesy against Mount Seir and say to it, "Thus says the Lord God: Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you will become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord, because you cherish perpetual enmity." and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword, at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you, because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. Right. So it sounds as if God has got some score settling to do, with Mount Seir, Edom, reference to a corner at least of the Arab nations if not a general term for them. Um, it all comes down to the working out of this perpetual hatred or perpetual enmity which there has been. There's always been enmity between them as there was between Jacob and Esau. And whereas at Many points in time where the two people overlapped in territory, there was um, a difficult getting along. It's changed now, hasn't it? As soon as they're in direct competition for the same bit of territory, which is the situation at the moment, you know, there's no accommodation, there's no give, there's no take. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. It, things are going to get bad. But there's something else here, which I think is quite uh, significant. Um, Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Final punishment? How many punishments have there been? How many flare-ups have there been? How many times has Jerusalem been destroyed? This has gone on cyclically over a long period of time, hasn't it? But this is, and it says, the final punishment. Well, the final punishment won't have been any that's happened, will it? And do we see the scene being set for things at the moment? I think we do. I'm not going into the detail of that. That's another subject. But there it is. And we expect this sort of thing to kick off before very long. Uh, Verse 10. Because you said these two nations, these two countries shall be mine. A reference to Israel and Judah, no doubt. And we will take possession of them, though the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them and I will make myself known among them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Right, so the context here is the time of the final punishment of the Jews. Now chapter 36. (coughs) The two go side by side, and there's quite a bit that's parallel. But whereas chapter 35 is addressed to Mount Seir, Edom, chapter 36 And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. So, another message, parallel, but addressed to the other side. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Right, well, I'm not going to go into uh, detail about what this might mean, but uh, we can imagine that this has got something to do with uh, uh, things in Jerusalem. But if you've got something like that happening there, and the uh, ancient heights have become our possession, it leaves us to fill in the gaps, doesn't it? But we can understand our people, Being pleased at the turn of events like that. Verse 5. Therefore thus says the Lord, God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession, with wholehearted joy and utter contempt, that they might make it pasture lands. It's pasture lands of prey. And verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach, echoing again what we had in the previous chapter. And two verses down at the end, and these are the ones that we're really working towards. So listen carefully. Therefore, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned amongst the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Well, let's just summarise what we've been looking at there. It looks as if there's going to be a final conflict between Jews and Arabs. It looks as if the Arabs will in this be ascendant. And it also looks as if God will then act in defence of those who are his. Those who are his are the Jews. They will be defended by God but why what did he say he was why did he say he was going to do it was it because the jews were good and the answer to that was no it wasn't because of anything that you've done but it's for my holy name's sake said god god said he would do this and he would demonstrate his power through the jewish nation But it wasn't because the Jews were obedient or, or, or remained faithful to God at all. So God would simply do it because he said he would do it. Now, you, that, that might, if you look at it in isolation, uh, be, be an empty gesture on God's part if there was nothing else attached to it. But of course there is. <laughs> we look at these passages in the Old Testament context. Within which we find reference to Abraham and the seed back in Genesis, uh, and it leads on to the coming of the Messiah, as we've already seen in John chapter 4. But there are just two more passages that I'd like to look at from the New Testament, which I'm going to use to pull these ideas together. The first of them is in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 1. Jesus, we've already said, was a Jew. Jesus died, but not before he'd shown to the world God his Father. What was demonstrated by him in his life, in his character, was so much of the character of God himself. So Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So Jesus came and he showed what God was like. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, so this was his death and his resurrection, wasn't it? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So here was Jesus, the Jew that God gave to the world to demonstrate himself to the world. Alongside that, I'd like us to put a passage from the letter to the Romans. It's chapter 3. And the beginning of the chapter again. Then what advantage is the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that's really where we've been coming to, isn't it? The Jews were trusted with the oracles of God because it was given to them to spread the message to the world, if they did it in the way that God had intended, then there would have been more plain speaking about what God would achieve through them. The fact of the matter is that the Jews made a, a poor job of declaring God to the world, and instead they, through their own selfishness, portrayed an awful lot that God was not. But what are we saying about these two passages here? Jesus put that right by what he did himself, didn't he? Jesus, in living the life that he lived, committed no sin, and he faithfully declared to the world what God was like and how it was possible that by dying as a sinful sacrifice he could obtain salvation to the world. This has come through the Jewish nation It's not the way we would have chosen to do it, but it's the way that God chose to do it. So if you think about what the world has benefited from, from the Jewish race, all you need to do is to look at the message, and look at Jesus, and see that in him is the salvation of mankind. And we all hope and trust in that. Because we look for his return and the kingdom of God to be established.